You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Hi, and welcome to 3RRR's Radiotherapy. It's that time of year when we all look back and assess our year that's passed. What's yours been like? Highs, lows? A stellar year, or have you had an anus horribilis? Anyway... No more thinking about that. We've got a show to do. This week on The Therapy, Dr Anabolics takes aim at Mark Latham and some very unfortunate comments he made during the week. You've got to listen in for this one. SK is going to review the film Fury, starring Brad Pitt, which got rave reviews in the New Yorker magazine, lining it up with Spielberg's Saving Private Ryan. And me, the tall man, I, I am going to get to big data today and the $3 trillion challenge. Can big data help the health sector? We're going to solve that problem in 10 minutes. The wonderful Kent is on panel, so the sound waves will be constant. So come on, slide into your Sunday morning and have a chat with us here on 3RRR's Radiotherapy. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Good morning, guys. Morning, tall man. Uh, I, I, I once heard a Latin, uh, uh, sorry, a broadcaster who obviously wasn't a Latin scholar mispronounce and yeah. describe someone as having had an anus horribilis. Yes. Which I thought wasn't necessarily in the I public was, interest to discuss. No, yeah, I but let's face it, we have seen a few of those. Yeah, so. exactly. But the Queen really gave us a, a word when she used that, because mm. she was the one that did it when mm. uh, Princess Di died that year That's and right. she called it anus horribilis. Mm. See, in the medical profession, we're not, we're not worried by the term anus. Anus or anus or, or any variation there. That's that's chicken feed compared to the, some of the stuff we get up to. <laughs> so right. Yeah, no, no, nobody's got any catch up this morning. I understand. Well, we've got no. a new government. I guess that's the oh, really? news. Apparently, there was an election. There was really. Although you probably don't know much about that. No, do I you? don't. As I said, I have not voted in thirty years. I, and as I said, I'm going to take you behind the shelter shed and sort you out, lad. Sort you out. I just don't see the point. You don't see the point. You don't see the point in democracy is what you're saying. Oh, no, I love democracy and I'm happy for everybody to participate it, uh, in it. I, I just... Uh, I just um, what would you tell What would you tell your kids to do when they get to be 18? They, they, they should do what they do, what they want to do. Yeah. So in the absence of catch-up, why do you not vote? <laughs> <laughs> there was a weariness in that, wasn't there? It was, oh, we've got to the end of the year. Look, uh, I... It's based on the fact that I like to vote for a leader, and and I'm I, as you will have known from last week's show where we spoke about leadership and all forms of leadership, but also political leadership. I, I'm underwhelmed by the standards of um, leadership in this country and political leadership. And, you know, okay, so you can't tar them all with one brush, but Jeff Shaw, I mean, there's a personality disorder on two legs. The fact that he could actually get into Parliament is... It makes me feel uh, disheartened, disappointed. 
astounded. And the mechanism whereby he got in compared to the people who didn't vote? Have you thought that through? <laughs> <laughs> OK. It's lost. Tallman, you, you say you haven't voted in 30 years. That implies that you've not been inspired by a leader for 30 years. And Correct. if you look federally... At, at least how certain people are being recast. Mm. I mean, you've got Bob Hawke, you've got Paul Keating, you've got uh, John mm. Howard, all of whom are being recast mm. as forceful leaders, whatever you might have felt about their policies at the time. Where does that leave you? Yeah, no, it leaves me um, without an answer. Don't worry, I'll get this at home. I feel like <laughs> I'm in my own kitchen right now. Like, you know, you... <laughs> all right, look, we're get, we, uh, we are going to... We're going to... We've got... We've got a great show ahead of us. We've got lots to talk about. And we're going to start with Dr Anabolics and Mark Latham's... Uh, gee, he's, uh, he's an interesting man. But we're going to actually pick him apart psychologically, oh. aren't we? Uh, well, I wasn't going to do I'm that. I'm going to. You, you want I'm, to do that, OK? Yeah, no, I think I've got, a, I think I've got an insight into his behaviour. All right, well, we'll so, start, start with the, so, the article. Mm. And we're allowed to do that. Because we're doing it gently. As a neurologist, I'm sure you'd rather pick him apart with a scalpel. It'd uh, <laughs> be more enjoyable for you. No, 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 not at all. No, no. Three triple R. Anabolics, tell me about... Uh, let's set it up. What happened? Okay. Well, it was on our theme of... Continuing theme of good men, tall man. Mm. I, I wanted to talk about Mark Latham's column in the Fin Review last week, which caused a storm and stirred up a lot of animated responses in both the social and print media through the week. Now, what was all this uh, about? Well, it started with a very light-hearted piece in the Sydney Morning Herald written by Lisa Pryor. Now, she is a journalist, author and a full-time medical student, as it happens, uh, from Sydney. And this was a short piece called Pill Pop Culture, fairly lighthearted, in which she shared the fact that she takes antidepressants, which she says have worked for her. Yeah. Okay? Yep. Now, she didn't go into her personal history of depression, but she makes it clear that she's making a you know, personal disclosure about taking medication for her mental health, and which she hopes will help other people, quote, feel safe to do the same, yep. which is uh, to her credit. Yep. And also she wants people to build the kind of connections that protect against psychological problems in the first place. She's, she's uh, talked about how when she mentions that she's had depression, other people open up and talk about it and feel safe to come out and discuss it, and this is a good thing. And as I say, it was in a light-hearted vein. It was accompanied by a picture of the author smiling happily. So it was a very, it was a short light-hearted piece, but it was, it had a lot of personal disclosure in it. Now, notwithstanding this, um, uh, Mark Latham took to print in the AFR, the Fin Review, to express how he had been, quote, knocked off his chair by the article, which he says exposes the core arguments of the feminist left. Now, the tone of Mr. Uh, uh, Latham's article was, was clearly hostile. It was a very hostile uh, article. There's no doubt about that. Why do people like this have children in the first place, he asks. That's the first thing. How will their children feel when they grow up and find they have pushed their children onto antidepressants? Mm. Now, ironically, this whole exchange occurred in postnatal depression awareness week. So mm. it had an added, added sting in the tail for its timing. Now... Mr Latham actually drew back his bow further to take aim at a much wider target uh, in, in, in this article. He says, and I quote, a major part of left feminism campaigning has involved the demonisation of children. 
Now, he doesn't give any references, so I can't tell you to which major parts of which campaigns he's referring, but I can't think of any examples personally, and I read a fair bit of you know this feminism stuff, so I don't know where the demonisation of children, he's, what he's quoting. Um, Lisa Pryor certainly made no reference to her children directly in the article, nor does she suggest in any way that she doesn't like them or doesn't like spending time with them or doesn't like being a mother. She didn't use the word feminist anywhere in the article. And uh, Mr Latham's obviously has inferred these things from her from her piece. And you've read the piece, haven't you, Tom? Yes, I have, yes. Now, he then goes on to accuse Ms Pryor of being, quote, a typical left-wing inner-city feminist, quote. What's an outer-city feminist? How do you, uh, well, do you split he, those? He talks about people in Sydney's West as being real women who, are, who like real mothering and um, who, who, don't, who dislike people in the inner-city feminist. Okay, so okay. he does go talk about that. Okay. Now, if, to further to that point, if you're wondering exactly what that is, an inner-city feminist, um, he goes on to explain. And these are women, and I'm quoting um, directly here, spend a lot of time complaining ostensibly on behalf of other women, yet their real priority is themselves. More often than not, they don't like children and don't want to be with them. They use political feminism as a release valve, trying to free themselves from nature's way. And I'm quoting directly. Uh-huh. Uh, interesting. I mean, that's almost that, that paragraph probably puts him on the right of Fred, Fred Nile, I reckon, right there. But anyway, that's what he says. Now, not surprisingly, the article provoked what I'm sure was the intended response, which is a lot of people, male and female, reacted and call, calling him, you know, uh, calling out, calling him out on many aspects of his article. And the name of his article, by the way, was "Why Left Feminists Don't Like Kids." That was mm. the actual title. Of his article. Mm-hmm. Now, there, look, there are two uh, there are two aspects I wanted to highlight here. I'm going to try and avoid any personal comment about Mr. Latham because that's all been said, I think. And, and uh, you, you said you wanted to look at look at his motives uh, yourself a bit, so I'll leave that with you. But uh, f- there's two aspects I think that, that bear thinking about this this discussion. Firstly, the response by an ex senior politician to someone who discloses that they were being treated for depression in is a response that is you know is going to be heard and listened to by many people. Mm. So I would have. I would suggest that it's reasonable to think and expect that you know such such responses would be responsibly given and responsibly spoken about, and that uh, wouldn't uh, wouldn't seek to worsen stigma about mental illness for people who d- who make those disclosures. And this certainly did seek to do that. There's no no doubt about that, and it adds to stigma. And so therefore, it's you know it's it's pretty deplorable, I think, in itself. Mm-hmm. And the other aspect of this article is that it raises the question of how do men, and in particular good men, sort of join the conversation regarding um, the role of women mm-hmm. without drawing blood, without that, that need to kind of attack. Mm-hmm. Um, now, to this question, there was a, a fabulous response from Annabelle Crabb in The Age, as part of the, yes. which I think I sent to you also. Yes. And she described Mr Latham's article as a wasted opportunity, which I thought was a lovely, a lovely phrase to use. Um, she said, this is a man who clearly loves his child-rearing role, she thinks, and who might be a role model for other men wishing to do the same. But his focus is an anti-feminist focus where feminism is equated to child-hating and motherhood-avoiding. Now, she puts this brilliantly. She says, Latham's private story is a great one about the triumph of love, a man whose commitment to and enjoyment of his children is bigger than anything in his life, and that's how he describes it. He could be a passionate and fearless buster of the club mentality that still dissuades men from changing the way they work when they have children. 
For men, the unwritten expectation that being a good father to one's children necessarily involves being absent from them is far, is, is, is far more oppressive than whatever stridencies an inner-city feminist might occasionally commit to paper. I thought that was a fabulous mm. kind of summary. In mm. other words, he, you know, the, we've talked about the oppression of men in similar ways the oppression of females very, very often here, that the expectation for many men that if they took on a full-time mother, a, pe- a fathering role involving young children, that that might cast some aspersions on their masculinity or that mm. might uh, involve uh, you know, deep changes to their sense of identity, whatever, and that, and that can be oppression all on itself. So um, I thought she summarised that really well. And the tragedy, she goes on to say, is that this inspiring story can't be told without the bloody exordium of a punch in the face to someone else. Mm. Um, so I just thought I'd bring it in to talk about, see what you guys thought about the article. So, you know, what is it about feminism that terrifies some men? Because clearly he's attacking this notion. Mm. He says that he, he, he lumps all feminists under an, an umbrella of child-hating, motherhood-avoiding um, people. Now, I'm I'm an inner city left wing feminist mm. uh, and I adore my children, couldn't I, wait to have them mm. and love spending time with them. I did work, I worked and looked after kids at the same time. So mm. um, I know that that's, that umbrella is, is, is an inaccurate umbrella. Mm. So what, 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 would make, what would make someone who's actually in that role of full time childcare uh, be so uh, vehemently and venomously uh, aggressive towards people and also so divisive between women. He's splitting women in two very clearly. What, what were your thoughts when you read the article, Tom? Um, my immediate thoughts were what has occurred in Mark Nath- Latham's life to get him into that psychological spot? So I didn't see this as an attack on feminism or um, child-rearing or roles. I saw this as a man who inherently was transferring from himself and his own problems psychologically outwardly onto an object. In this case, he picked feminism. So to fully understand his motivation of why he's actually cracking on about this, I suspect that there is part of him that is troubled by his role and that is feeling trapped by his role and conflicted by his role. And I doubt very much whether he at this stage has been able to reflect internally to identify those emotions. So the the natural consequence of that is that you transpose or you transfer all of that grief that you have internally and you you go after somebody else so for me this was not an intellectual exercise uh, from a person this was this is somebody who's being driven by their own internal psychology we see this i think a lot mm-hmm. in the media we, we 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 actually falsely ascribe knowingness to the people that are writing. Well, they're like everybody else. They're fallible. They have their own emotions, their own emotions that are not worked out uh, necessarily, but they're not, they're not delivering us an intellectual exercise. They're actually just there as a human being that is flawed and, and, and actually writes in a way that some sections of the media like because it attracts attention and that makes money. And I see it for no more or less than that because I believe that 90% of men would read that article and say, he's got an issue. It's not his issue. 
Tall man Sigmund Freud had a, had a saying that sometimes a cigar is just a cigar and sometimes you can read too much into things and, you know, sometimes a dickhead is just a dickhead. <laughs> and, you know, if you take all of your intellectual cues from Mark Latham's rantings in the AFR, you know, that, that says a lot more about your own psychological Correct. issues than it does. Yeah. Latham's well known for attacking everybody and uh, you said it yourself, uh, Anabolic's not only is he trying to split women in his little polemic there, but he's also trying to split men. You know, he's criticising men for feeling like they have to go out and earn money and be the breadwinner rather than be as good as I am and stay at home and look after the kids. See, I don't believe he feels that good. Well, to, to me, the rebuttal to that point was made by one of the, the readers in the comments section after Annabelle Crabbe's response, which was, I'm sure a lifetime pension helps, yes. Mark, in your ability to do this. You know, you don't have to worry about going out and being a, a Again, the flawed individual. I mean, you know, so what do we call this? I mean, in so Psychological terms, there's a certain narcissism here, isn't there? In Mark Latham? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but a, a, a really unresolved narcissism, or an, a, he, he's got no chance of actually changing that paradigm. Well, one of the comments below his article also said that the, the pill he needed to be on wasn't an antidepressant but a, something that needs to be invented, which was a, a political relevance, irrelevance um, mm. uh, deprivation yeah. syndrome pill, <laughs> that he was a person who's just yeah, so cannot I, cope with know, being out I of the mean, I look at it, I, I, I read that whole thing and, and Annabelle Crabbe's response and, and to, mistakenly, rather than annoyance and rage at Mark Latham, I felt sad. I, look, I can I, understand, yeah, I understand yeah. what you're saying, however However, I do think um, there is. Uh, it, it's probably easier for you to look at that side of things. Yes. Maybe I'm just postulating than it would be for a female because yes. it is so clearly directed okay. to which where I want to go. Yeah. So, I I personally think that we can we can dwell on the negative. On on the in this issue, especially in, as a good man or a, a person a. Uh, uh, aspiring to be a good man I want to concentrate on the positive stories and do they get as much airtime? do they get as much run in the media possibly I think they can especially if if uh, if we if we sort of promote the the good stories where you know we're seeing we're seeing men actually challenge their roles and 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 understand their place in the family and understanding that you know your child's mental health um is is very dependent on the presence of a father figure and a good father figure or just a father figure at the end of the day that's better than nothing i think that's getting out into society but i i think we've got to move away from responding to what i think now is a minority view uh, where we do get people for all sorts of reasons wanting to take adversarial and combative points of view. I think, I think we've now moved into an era where we can say, well, you know, th- th- he's on the fringe. This is on the fringe. Well, we've got to be careful about throwing the baby out with the bathwater because presumably there are positive aspects to the story about Mark Latham staying at home and looking after his kids and cooking gourmet meals. You know, that, well, certainly, quite yeah. aside from his recent comments, would yeah. seem to paint him as a, as a good man in at least one of those senses yeah. that we've so talked this, about this, the this, this is, I think, where the, the phrase wasted opportunity comes in yes. because he, he is doing this. And, yes. and, and if you take your point, Torman, that you, you, know, you want you know, men to be there at the end of the day and to be yes. liberated and to do what they can and be yeah. a good role model, one way that's going to happen 
happen is if men and women um, share both those mm. childcare and parenting and money earning roles. Yes. And uh, he may have a full time pension coming in for the rest of his life, but. A great many um, of the couples having children now do not. Yeah. Many of them, as we know, have huge mortgages and yeah. huge hex fees to pay off. And yeah. the days of people being having the luxury of being able to have one person at home full time, I reckon, are fading. Okay. They just there's no one's very few people have that luxury anymore. Yeah. So in, in, in order to allow men that um, that lovely breadth and that access to their children and, and the choices to, to make the choices that don't threaten their own identity and you know allow them to really love the, mm. the bit of time they spend with kids. Women need to feel free to yeah. take on some of those yeah. uh, you know, uh, roles too. So uh, I, I, you know, he self-defeats his own We also have purpose. to get away from the romantic notion of what parenting and doing that role actually is. It's hard work. Absolutely. You, know, you are buggered. <laughs> you are tired. You are frustrated. You, you, you lose your temper. But, but at the end of it, uh, you've, got to, you know, you've, got to, you've got to know that it is worthwhile and it's certainly worthwhile for your children. I think we're getting over that hump, but you're right. Having to sustain a family in today's society requires effectively two incomes. And and that's all I think people are wrestling with. The good side of that is that the way society is changing and the way work is changing, we're able probably to accommodate that more and more into the future. So if he wants to be a, a good man, he needs to do more than just take his load and yeah. take his share of yeah. the work. He also has to encourage other men and encourage yeah. other women to liberate themselves and yeah. feel yeah. they've got choices And that would have been a positive article. It would have been a positive article. That's not his persona and it's never going to be his persona. So we, we can see the good in what he does and... Uh, and we can accept that the rest is uh, what, what I call white noise. Three triple R. Oh, look, we we need to stop playing the music and actually have the conversation that we have off air. Boy, oh boy. Apropos of which, the aptly named Fury <laughs> is, is the film that I'm uh, having a look at this week. Have you have you guys seen this, by the way? No, no. Yeah, I wish I had. I haven't seen a film in 10 years. Make for an interesting discussion then. Yeah. Fury uh, puts itself out there as being an, an anti-war film, uh, at least for the first two-thirds of its length. It's, it's usually very hard to make a true anti-war film because uh, the subject matter is so intrinsically exciting in a way that uh, that often takes over from any message the film might try and send, and I think... Uh, Fury falls into this category. It's a very uh, morally ambivalent film, and I thought I'd try and tackle it this morning from the perspective of uh, what it means to be a good man, which is a discussion that we've been having all year. Uh, the central character in the film is is played by Brad Pitt, who plays a tank commander who goes by the, the name of War Daddy. He's a sergeant commanding a five-man crew in his uh, tank. And we're, we're faced with the question throughout the film as to whether this central character is a saint or a psychopath. And what's the dividing line between the two? What's the true meaning of heroism in society and particularly within the context of a war setting? Mm. Uh, when we first meet, meet Brad Pitt in this film, he and his tank crew have just returned from an engagement and he's setting them about their business for overnight to try and get the tank back into some order and he's presented as a no-nonsense tough straight-talking kind of guy he gives them some tasks he wanders off on his own his crew calls after him where are you going and where he is actually going the audience see but his crew don't he retreats to a space between two vehicles and essentially has a a bit of a breakdown he sort of uh, uses 
10 seconds to pull himself together. He tears up, he becomes distressed, he puts his hands to his head in anguish before he reassumes this tough exterior persona. Now, why would he need to hide that? Because that wouldn't have served him well if he'd been able to show that uh, in front of his men. His men needed somebody to look up to, to aspire to, to be fathered by, if you like, to continue a discussion we were having previously. He was the container of his crew's anxieties, I felt, and if he wasn't capable of holding it together... He knows, and probably at some level they know as well, that the whole uh, charade would fall to pieces. He's got a carefully constructed psychological game going with his crew that he uses in order to keep them functioning and functional, and by extension in this horrific environment, alive. It's what he needs to do. So the contention there is that if he demonstrated that emotional uncertainty, that emotional... um sense of uh, fallibility that he wouldn't be able to lead that they would then disrespect his leadership this is a really important point Mm, mm, mm. they would both disrespect his leadership and of course he would find himself unable to lead his men would be unable to be led but he would be unable to lead because assuming that persona was necessary for him to do what he had to do as well okay so Mm. i i want to challenge that Mm, precept mm. Okay, as, as a man, uh, and I've, we've seen examples of this. We've seen we've seen our leaders break down. We've seen uh, them register the emotion of the uh, of the moment they're talking about. And I don't believe, as a man looking at that, I felt that I would follow them any less, or I would respect their ability to lead me any less. Particularly if they, if, if through that they gain some personal sense of strength themselves. Mm. This is what is happening in ten seconds between the tanks. Presumably, he's going, mm. "Okay, I've released that. Now I can yeah. do what I've got to yeah. do." Which is a role model for so, how to manage. I mean, do, you, do you think, SK, that that's important? That because I, I think that that's the problem that we. This is where good men fall over. <laughs> I think. I think it neglects the context, tall man, and okay. the context in this film is is war. life and death. And, you know, we we're told that World War Two was the last good war, if you like, and that there was no moral ambivalence between the two sides. It's been cast mm. historically as a battle between good and evil. Yes. Uh, this film in particular shows that it, it, it was a deeply morally ambivalent war, particularly towards the end. And this film set, I think, in June 1945, like just a few months before the end of the war. And the war at this point had essentially already been won. And Hitler had declared what he referred to as total war at that point. And we see him, uh, you know, enlisting women, children to don the uniform and take up arms against the Allies who are forced to slaughter them largely unnecessarily because the war, by and large, had already been won. Mm. And it's a deeply uh, conflicted role that being a soldier in that environment finds you in. Mm. And you see that throughout the film through uh, the eyes of a young recruit who's posted to Brad Pitt's tank as a replacement for the fellow who'd been killed in the last engagement mm. and uh, one of this young fellow's first jobs was to scrape the remains of his seat's previous occupant out of the tank including mm. his face that had been plastered against the wall mm. 
and uh, the audience views the experience of the soldier through the eyes of this young recruit and uh, Brad Pitt gives him a very hard time gives him, gives him some very stern advice at the start of his rotation don't get too close to anybody harden up, you're going to have to do things that you're not comfortable with this clerk had only been in the army for eight weeks and he was uh, a typist basically, shorthand was his major skill, he'd never shot anybody before and as part of the dehumanising toughening up process we see in one scene Brad Pitt following an engagement uh, there's a German prisoner of war that a number of American soldiers are abusing and are probably going to end up killing mm. and Brad Pitt stops them but only to encourage this young recruit Norman to shoot the POW in the back because Brad Pitt knows that the only way his crew are going to be able to survive is if this young recruit functions properly in his role of killing German soldiers. And we see in an earlier scene, the very first time Norman, the young recruit, comes, comes across a German soldier, there's a, a convoy of four tanks, and mm. Brad Pitt's tank is the second one. A uniformed figure emerges from the, the woods with a, a Panzerfaust, a, a mobile anti-tank weapon. And uh, Norman has the opportunity to shoot this soldier, but he hesitates because he realises that the soldier is a like a prepubertal boy dressed mm. up in a uniform, mm. but the boy destroys the tank in front and the mm. tank commander stumbles out and he's mm. immolated and shoots himself in the head to avoid the pain. And mm. Brad Pitt harasses Norman for this and harangues him and slaps him around saying, this man died because of your failure to shoot mm. that enemy soldier, which was a young boy. Mm. So deeply morally ambivalent, and Brad Pitt's actions you know, constitute a war crime ostensibly, you know, encouraging another soldier to shoot a prisoner of war, but he really, it was a pragmatic uh, result to a dilemma that Brad Pitt had to try and keep his crew alive. And that's where the film really succeeds in its first uh, two-thirds, in creating this morally ambivalent yeah, I mean, you, you know, you sort of you, you're thinking of this as a story, as a fictional story, which obviously, in reality, probably has truth. I mean, you know, those situations that are contrived probably do reflect situations that uh, men and women in war have found themselves in, and and you don't have to go further than to look at our current situation and uh, with the ISIL. Uh, to see that you know you, you you become conflicted and ambivalent about what you would do, you know if you if, if you see an aid worker's uh, head being cut off, you know it 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 does you, you become bereft. You know what do we do here? You know there do we are we are we understanding? Are we trying to you know reconcile? You know I I, I find that that in real life situation difficult to, to balance where do I take these emotions because you know there's the primal uh, man inside if you like that says no this is this is evil there's no doubt here this is evil and that evil's got to be crushed um, this is not this is not being a Muslim this is not being a Christian this is just being a very bad human being a psychopathic human being uh, and we can't afford to have people like that in our society. 
But when you think about it, during wartime, though, uh, the things that even good men are required to do are psychopathic. And uh, yes. to me, it, in, it illustrates a, a bit of an intra-psychic split that people must be capable of developing in, in war situations, that if you do view the enemy as human, then, of course, you're not going to be able to function in your role to, to kill them effectively. Mm. We see that in films such as Full Metal Jacket as well, where essentially the first half of the film shows how U.S. Marines are broken down down and dehumanised to the extent that they can kill without compunction. Can I, can I throw another question to you as, as men? Rather, draw back the picture to, um, from Americans and Germans and say the men in, in the field in these war times were, were all young men and at any time possibly they could have made as a group a choice to mutually retreat and recognise that the war was over, recognise or, or decide that they would go back to the, the geopolitical boundaries that existed. They actually could have made choices like that themselves. I think it's extremely hard for young men in the field to do that. You have to... Uh, one of the things that was very informative is, is to look at the writings of people in the, in the trenches in World War I. They mm. all said, everybody else is being so brave and I'm so scared. And they were all writing the same letters. I, I think it's, uh, with all due respect, anabolics, pretty naive to expect that soldiers or small units functioning in the field have that choice, particularly when the military hierarchy would actually shoot you for making that choice. Uh, the choice to retreat lies in the power structure, not in the individual soldiers on the ground at that level. I think men are, men are shaped very strongly. Well, by the time they get there, they're shaped very strongly and, and, and told what, what they have to do, I agree, mm. very strongly. But mm. it's and, a possibility. And, and they have to be in order to function. I mean, I think war there intrinsically... Are examples. There are examples of that, men doing that. Well, I suppose mm. as though at the World War One Christmas episode right, where they stopped right. temporarily to yeah. play soccer before resuming shooting each other. But, that's sad, uh, yeah. yeah. But, you know, war is is a situation that in itself places men who may well be intrinsically good in a situation where they react in an adaptive way to the situation at the time and that adaptive way requires them to do evil things. Sure. Where Fury as a film falls down is in is sort of in the final reel where there's uh, a, a battle scene which reverts to the more traditional glorification of battle but with a twist you know, uh, we see Norman, the young soldier, come out of this as the only surviving member of the tank crew to get through the film. And uh, he's found by other American troops at the end of the film, and uh, they're lauding him as a hero. And you see him able to reflect on what he has actually done to be labelled a hero and can see in that shot that he's quite conflicted about having been described as such as well. But uh, his, his journey, Norman's journey, as the film progresses, he's turned from this naive person who couldn't shoot anybody to uh, someone himself who revels in his role and who glorifies what he's doing. You see him machine-gunning uh, German soldiers and yelling, die Nazi scum at them. Uh, he escapes the tank through a hatch in the bottom of it at the end and he's lying there terrified under the treads as German soldiers pass by and there's this other scene where a German soldier shines a torch underneath the tank and actually sees him and he's terrified and thinks he's going to be 
tortured and murdered horrifically for all the soldiers that he's killed and the German soldier just lets him be and moves on so whether that's sending a message that within the horrors of war there can be glimpses of humanity as well even on the other side who we dehumanise it was a very strong film it's not the sort of film that anybody can go along and say I really enjoyed that film you don't enjoy a film like this but it does make you think and reflect on a number of things uh, the nature of war the nature of heroism and uh, by extension what it means to be a good man. And that, that journey that he goes on to become a very um, angry, angry and violent person, does that make you reflect possibly on the journey that the, these ISIL guys are taking? Do you think it's possible that they've come from the same place and are being brought along to this same awful place with the same mechanism? I think perhaps they're having a different mechanism of viewing their enemies as subhuman imbued into them you know if god is on your side and uh, everybody who doesn't follow your god is an infidel and deserves to be put to death that's another way of rationalizing your acts Mm. Mm. look complex but uh interesting uh we'll wrestle with this forever i think three triple I'm here to talk about uh, big data. And uh, what do you think big data is, SK? Apart from big bits of... I'm tantalised by your challenge last week that you could predict uh, disease states in an individual by the use of big data because, to me, big data is looking at uh, literally metadata and making predictions on a population basis Mm. based on that. Yeah, so big data, when, when people are really talking about big data these days, what they're talking about is the amalgamation of all sorts of data sources into one huge data source. And it has its, its, its really sort of taken off, I suppose, in the commercial sector in merchandising and selling that um, people have really registered that if you can track an individual's spending pattern, you can actually predict what they're going to want to buy. Um, and there have been some celebrated examples of push notifications uh, in the last two years. And I was listening to a chap talk about this um, where a company had sent this 20-year-old girl push notifications about her buying patterns to say, well, you know, you should be heading towards, you know, there's, there's a sale on in maternity. Um, and the, um, the father then approached the uh, the organisation and berated them. You know, how dare you say this to my 20-year-old daughter who A, is not married and B, is not pregnant. This is an outrage that you would do that. What actually then transpired was that the girl, in fact, was pregnant but didn't know it. And her buying patterns had reflected that she was pregnant. And and this has been published in the in the literature. So there is this sort of um, where it's about selling and commercialisation, where you know there may be some validity in 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 analysing data. What about coincidence? You send out sure. twenty million push notifications sure. to twenty million twenty-year-old women, sure. and you're going to get sure. a few pregnant ones. And, and there is that. So let's bring it back to science. So you know that that is a celebrated case that was uh, published in the literature. But uh, let's bring it back to science. So what? What's enabled big data to exist is the emergence of digitisation of information. So in the medical sector, we, we write in clinical histories. Those clinical histories are paper-based, they're stored, um, and you wouldn't be able to interconnect any of them. Uh, in terms of the content, that is, the patient's symptoms, their progress in hospital. It's all in uh, un, 
gettable unless you get the actual volume, um, and they're not linked. The only time that it's all linked up, of course, is when somebody registers. So you register to go into a hospital, your name and basic demographic details, your insurer, whether you uh, live alone, whether you have a spouse, all of that sort of information has been collected, and it has been predominantly digital really over the last 20 to 30 years. But now the emergence of data is coming out that um, we're actually putting in the clinical notes information that's digitised. The diagnosis uh, is digitised, all sorts of parts of the history is digitised, but also the tests that we do have a digital footprint. So an electroencephalogram where you're looking at brain waves... um, when you do an ECG, it's, it's digital. When you do an MRI scan, it has a digital footprint. Um, when you link uh, your test results, your, your pathology results, it's all now digitally uh, imprinted. So there, there is this information which, if you put it all into a big melting pot, does it have a utility? And that's the current science, really, for for this area of research, is to find out if you analyse that, do things pop up that that actually signify an outcome, if you match it to an outcome. Don't uh, doctors do that intuitively through the clinical method, what we're doing when we're taking history and synthesising ex- examination and investigation results is processing that data set within our own brains to reach a conclusion for the individual on a computer yeah, to do it. Correct. That's exactly what that's the fuzzy logic that we use. We call it uh, it's it's the art of medicine or that's the clinical skill of medicine is to be able to sift out what is the noise to the signal. So signal to noise ratio is what this is all about. There's a lot of noise, background noise that uh, means nothing and then there is real signals of this is a very important symptom. And that result, that pathology result where the, you know, the bilirubin is sky high, that's a very important result that leads us to, to refine down, give a diagnosis and design a therapy. So exactly correct. So that's what you've just described is what clinicians are supposed to do on a one-to-one basis. When you've got a, a client, a patient in front of you, and you're trying to sift through to make sense of is there disease, what is the disease, what needs to be done. What big data does is does that for a whole population. So can you do it for a whole population? One of the next... So let's assume that now we're getting the evolution of large digital data stores. Um, the next thing that you need is the linkage of those data stores. It's not... And then linked to an individual. And this is where we get into ethical issues about identification of people's data that's their personal data um, and the whole notion of privacy this is where we're caught up uh, in in this massive discussion and it has some validity about that but linkage is critical to proper data analysis you've got to be able to at the end of the day link it back to an individual if you're going to um, modify their health behavior or actually design an intervention to assist them with health outcomes the next Area that's the third element that's really evolving and evolving really rapidly is machine learning and algorithms. So you can take uh, information and through mathematical models, it can learn as as it analyzes the data that's coming in. It can learn by its mistakes and refine its ability to predict something. So those mathematical models, statistics basically, um, are are really evolving. And I'll give a a small example of of this. We recently um, 
were presented with a, a digital uh, analysis of all of our patients that had come to our hospital um, in, in the stroke neurology service and it enabled us to... Uh, they'd analysed it with the looking at the outcome, whether the patient was likely to be readmitted again within 30 days of their discharge. So the machine learnt was... was they developed the mathematical model to learn this. And so we could click on any patient and they applied the model and it would predict um, with what level of assurance that, in fact, that patient was a high candidate to be readmitted within the next 30 days. Now, the signal that it uses is irrelevant. It doesn't matter whether it's your postcode, the fact that you're a widowed individual and a male. If they're the three things that keep cropping up as the highest predictor of readmission and the machine's learnt that, then it's going to spit that out back to you. Uh, so you can see that all of a sudden you can, you can take a cohort of patients and say they need to have some attention if we're going to to change the course of their health outcome. So that's a, that's a minor example, but that's an area of endeavour and research that we're, we're currently sort of, uh, we certainly locally are currently sort of looking at. Have you done any internal comparisons with your own clinical prediction about whether the patient's likely to be readmitted? Yes, so they've done that with psychiatry. So they've done, uh, that what they did was a suicidal risk algorithm where they looked at the psychiatrist who used their proformers and their own intuitive skill to predict what the suicide uh, likelihood was or the risk of suicide in an individual and they compared that to the machine and they found that the machine was 70% better than the clinician. Now, suicide risk prediction is notoriously hard to do. Correct. Were they predicting completed suicide, which is it's still a very rare event, even it is. in psychiatric populations? No, attempted suicide. Attempted suicide. Attempted suicide. Yeah, much, much easier thing to yeah. predict. And also, if the clinician predicts it, then actions take place to prevent it. So there is an inter- intervention that's possible generally, here that generally. would, that would that's right. therefore mean that, that those people would not likely yeah. commit the, so the suicide. The yeah. So the astounding thing was that the machine was pretty good at doing this. So this is work that's been done by Professor Svetha Venkatesh at the Prada Group at Deakin. And it's an evolving area of health service research. And mind you, it's not just that group. There's the people... This was originally the idea for talking about this came from an article um, by Suchi Asara from John Hopkins University who has a whole department dedicated to uh, what what this area of research might do for health and his his challenge was that the, the health budget in America has just hit 17% of gross national product. Now in 1969 it was 5%. That is largely now seen as we cannot sustain that amount of expenditure on health. And they and America have very poor outcomes. They're th- I think they're ranked 36th in terms of their health outcomes. Are there perverse uses to which this data could be put? Like if the computer spits out that you've got a 95% probability of dying in the next two weeks, would the health economists use that as an argument for not spending any money on this? I'm sure you can develop all the scenarios you like that it it could be used for perverse. But uh, taking a more optimistic, the greater good point of view. (laughs) So what this goes to is, and where the areas now that are being rapidly looked at are... um, 
predictive models for targeting care so that we deliver the right care to the right people at the right place rather than, you know, let's just say on, on average we waste 25% of our health budget on unnecessary tests and care. So that's one area. Then individualising treatment recommendations so that, in fact, where there is no knowledge, we can use this sort of data analysis to actually say, well, you know, the, on average, you're going to most benefit from this treatment. And that, that, is, a, that is going to, again, rationalise the use of health dollars and treatments so that it's more accurate. We're actually, we've got a better idea of knowing what treatment each individual should get. And then... The other area where it, this is going to threaten the sacred cows, but developing new therapies, so that if you, rather than the randomised controlled trial, which on average co- costs $100 million for each new therapeutic, there may be new paradigms for analysing data to see whether the, in real life those therapies are effective. So rather than sort of... Uh, throw all this away as, as sci-fi and 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 improbable. There probably, you know, the promise will probably be that there are areas where it can be effective in helping us rationalise our health dollars because we certainly cannot keep spending money the way we are in health. It won't be sustainable. So that's big data. Mm. And on that note, <laughs> so anabolics, thank you very much. We're not reforming till next year. Oh, this is our last uh, one. This is our last one. Ah. SK, but is, is there a group next week? Ah, there's three more shows to three come. Show, yes, no. Our... So till next year, we'll see you later. See you next Bye. year. Bye. La grosse radio pour des grands enfants. Triple R FM. Big radio for big kids. Is that right? All oh, right. Okay. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.